God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us so he might pay the price to free us from all evil and to make us pure people who belong only to him, people who are always wanting to do good deeds. And now from Titus 3, starting in verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, he saved us because of his mercy. It was not because of good deeds that we did to be right with him. He saved us through the washing that made us new people through the Holy Spirit. God poured out richly upon us that Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Being made right with God by his grace, we could have the hope of receiving the life that never ends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here with us, that you're present here in this moment. And we ask that as we open your word, that you open our hearts and our minds to understand the truth for us today. We pray through the Holy Spirit, our teacher, and through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, because of the depth and the the breadth that's contained in these two sections, what we're doing is we're breaking these up and we're looking at them one concept at a time because the work of grace is certainly a comprehensive thing that is occurring in our lives. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started uh, uh, looking at the doctrine of salvation as presented here in Titus. And even the doctrine of salvation that's contained in these two sections is a comprehensive doctrine. There's no way we could possibly cover it at once. And so we almost, it's like we started a series within a series. Hmm. I wonder if a series within a series is allowed. I mean, I know that you can do a dream within a dream, but a series within a, I better check with DiCaprio just to make sure. Hang on a second. There's a lag between the phone and the screen. Oh, it's Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way. We're friends. It's a long story. I can't go to it right now. Waiting to see what he says. Okay, that's good to know. All right, good. So DiCaprio says that we can do a series within a series, right? Just not a message within a message. So uh, we've got clearance to do this. Now, in part two of our series within a series, you can... uh, It sounded way better in my head, uh, you know, which apparently these days is most of my jokes. So in part two of our series within a series, we're just going to look at verse 14, And this is a really amazing verse if you consider everything that's being said here. Titus 2, verse 14, I'm going to read it again. He gave himself for us so he might pay the price to free us from all evil and to make us pure people who belong only to him, people who are always wanting to do good deeds. Now listen, just just in this verse, in verse 14, we find at least four things. Now, maybe you've noticed I often say we find at least in these passages, and there's a reason for that. It's because it doesn't matter how many times we've been around something like this, there's always more to see. 
As our faith grows and our experience with God, as we experience more and more and we get to know and we're closer to His heart, we discover more and more in these texts, more even in these Scriptures that we have been around all of our lives. There is certainly more nuance there. So, for example, just think about the first five words of verse 14. He gave Himself for us. He gave Himself for us. I mean, just in that, in those first five words, there's so much there for us to consider. So, what I want to do is I just want to spend a few minutes today. I just want to consider and contemplate the reality, the truth that's being expressed in those five words. He gave Himself for us. So, what is it that we see? Well, there's at least two things, and I think they're connected. Uh, we see that uh, salvation is something personal. It's something personal. He gave Himself for us. And so, what, we, what we're really seeing here in these first five words, and in fact, in verse 14 in general, we could call this the premise of salvation, the premise of salvation. A lot of times we talk about, you know, the promise of salvation, the hope of salvation, but this is really showing us the premise of salvation. So, when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, it's rooted in who Jesus is. And the fact that it's rooted in who Jesus is also shows us not just the premise, but how personal this is. Jesus is our Savior because He gave Himself for us. Now, what this is teaching us, it's teaching us something about the giver, and it's also teaching us something about the gift. So, those are the two things that are being conveyed here in just these five words. We're learning about the giver, and we're learning about the gift. The premise tells us something about the giver and the gift that is given. And then when you look at the gift that has been given to us, it also tells us something about the giver. These two things are so connected. They're so related. Anytime you consider a gift, whether it's something that you have given or someone gives to you, it somewhat says something about who gives it to you. So, you know, it's like in the 80s when I was totally and righteously into racquetball, right? Man, I miss my mullet. Josh, don't shake your head. You don't know what it's like. I mean, truthfully, I miss my hair, you know. It's just really what I miss. I was so into racquetball, I bought my mom and my dad and my two sisters racquetball rackets and all related accessories. Like, I piled it onto them. Now, here's what you need to know, right? I know you're thinking, man, you're a great giver, right? Yeah, it's true, I am. What a gift, right? But here's what you need to know. My sisters had never played racquetball, and there was hardly any chance they were going to start playing racquetball. Uh, My dad had played racquetball, you know, occasionally just for recreational purposes, you know. It was all medicinal, trust me. And then there's my mom. Hmm. How do I explain this? Um, You were more likely, there, there was a better chance of finding Elvis, Hoffa, and Bigfoot in a resort in the Bahamas playing Parcheesi than there was getting my mom on a racquetball court. To which some of you are saying, so you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) So what did the gift that I gave them say? It said that I was into racquetball. 
That's all it said. It was a costly gift, yeah, but I was giving the gift for myself. I was giving not a gift of myself. I was giving a gift for myself because, you know, as it so happened, in a couple of months, I had like four racquetball rackets. That which is given, which is the gift, it says something about the one who gives the gift, the giver. So, when the Bible says here in Titus, he gave himself for us, this tells us something personal, not just about the gift, but it tells us something personal about the giver. This tells us something about Jesus as the one who gave. In the same way that John 3.16 says, for God so loved that he gave. Now, that word gave, it's not a terribly exciting Greek word as far as Greek words go. But there are different forms of this word that you see throughout the New Testament. So I just mentioned that when Paul uses this word here, it's the same word that John uses to describe God and his great love and his great gift. But there's a little different wrinkle going on here. Because it's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 15 when he tells that parable of the man with two sons. You know how the younger son goes off and comes back? Do you remember how the father receives him? But your English Bibles use a different word here. But it's the same Greek word. Because the father, he says, bring me my robe and put it on him. Bring the sandals, bring the ring and put them on him. It's the same word. And so what's that teaching us? First of all, it's saying, boy, how personal is this? That salvation is something that is given to us. It doesn't belong to us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. I think we get that. But we have to understand this idea that salvation is like God going to his closet and taking out his robe and putting it on us and saying, here, belongs to you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it even in our rebellion. God says he places this on us. It shows us something that's valuable that we do not own. It shows us something precious that that we do not possess. It tells us so much about the giver and about the gift. When the Bible says he gave himself for us, it's telling us something so personal, not just about the gift because of what the gift is, but about the God who gives about Jesus who gave himself for us. When we talk about this, how he gave himself for us, what's the word that we normally use? It's the word sacrifice. We think of the word sacrifice when we come across these five words. He gave himself for us. So we always use the word sacrifice in in this moment. But, you know, it's weird because we use the word sacrifice today in some really strange places. Uh, Those of you who are baseball fans, you know that when a baseball player puts a ball into play and there's a runner on base and that runner gets to move over and that batter gets out, do you know what we call that? A sacrifice. A sacrifice play. Uh, You know, when you've put in some long hours at work Monday through Friday and you've got to take home with you over the weekend and you have to work all weekend long, you know what we call that? We call that sacrificing your weekend, right? Uh, when you're caller number two and, and you win four tickets to the long-awaited and anticipated boys to men to geriatric men world nursing home tour, but there's five of you in the group 
And so you give up your ticket for someone else to go. We call that sacrificing yourself for your friends, for your group. Now, all of those examples, you know, they're rooted in some way to this idea of giving something up. But making an out or working over the weekend or giving up a concert ticket, that seems like a somewhat superficial expression of sacrifice. And I know, I know you're saying, I don't understand how important the boys to men to geriatric men world nursing home tour actually is. You're right. I don't get it. So when we look at this word sacrifice and we use it in all these other contexts, it has some meaning, but it's not the meaning that we're after. So we have to look deeper. We've got to go deeper into what this concept he gave himself for us to understand that we're looking for another level. We're looking for another layer. We're looking for more nuance than how we use this word. So we think about military personnel, we think about police officers, we think about firefighters and medical personnel, people who give themselves in the line of duty, who who literally, they lay down their lives in these moments for someone else. And now we have a better idea of what it means to give yourself, to sacrifice yourself for someone else. The person who gives themselves to save another Now, when you're reading from the Greek New Testament, this phrase, he gave himself for us, it literally says, he gave himself on behalf of us. On behalf of us. Now, this is where nuance is great. This is where the layer is so great because, you see, even in just understanding it that way, it changes something. That he gave himself on behalf of us. Because now what we're talking about is that what Jesus has done for us is an exchange or a substitution. An exchange or a substitution. And I think this makes a difference. It shows us just how personal it is. When we talk about salvation of what Jesus has done for us as an exchange or substitution, this is an essential part of understanding the doctrine of salvation. You have to to catch this. this. This idea has to take firm root in your heart for you to understand. Because when we speak of salvation as in terms of paying a debt, right? He paid a debt he did not owe. That's a good part. But it's not the complete part. It's like we're just staring at the corner of a canvas and not the entire work of art. To just talk about salvation in terms of he paid a debt he did not owe. Right? It's part of this doctrine. It's part of this understanding of salvation. But until you cross to I owed a debt I could not pay, you're not seeing the entire part. The entire picture, this canvas, this work of art that we call salvation. So we have to move from this generic idea, this theoretical concept that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, and it has to sink down into your heart, which is what the gospel is trying to do, that he did this for you. Because only a profound experience with the grace of God is going to change your heart. That's the only thing that's going to change your heart. 
And so we're moving from this big idea, from this big concept, we're moving to so that it's more personal that Jesus has done this for me. But what has He done for me? So when we speak of salvation, when we talk about this idea of salvation, we have to think of it as exchange or substitution. That's why the Bible describes sin as a crushing debt, a debt that you could never repay, ever. And that's why the Bible talks about grace as the free forgiveness of a debt that you could never repay, ever. And so as we're trying to process this doctrine of salvation, we grasp at the component as we did in part one of what it means to be saved from sin, but we don't want to just focus on He saved my life. Because it's not just the preventing of the loss of life, it's not just the the restoring back to life, there's something far deeper, far greater that we're trying to understand here. Now, Uh, There are some stories in the Bible that talk about Jesus and how He prevents the loss of life, okay? So probably the quintessential example of this is in John chapter 8 when a woman is brought to Him, uh, supposedly caught in adultery, and the religious leaders want to kill her. They want to stone her on the spot, and they leave it up to Jesus. And so when Jesus says, okay, those among you who are without sin, go ahead, start throwing rocks, and they walk away one by one. We look at this text and we say, okay, what's happening here is that Jesus literally saves her life. He saves her life in that moment. I mean, not not just that, you know, colloquial or, or, or expression, you know, He gave her her life back. No, He saved her life in that moment. But that's just an example. That's just part of it. You see, it's a great example. It's a great moment, right? It's one of the best stories we have in the Bible. But It's not an example of exchange or substitution. And even when you think about the people who Jesus brought back to life, you think about Lazarus, you think about Jairus' daughter, you think about the, the son of the widow, all these people who Jesus is around who He literally brings back to life, right? He restores life to them. Those are wonderful stories, right? I mean, we're grateful that those happen. They encourage our faith. I mean, good for them and good for us, right? But they're not examples of exchange or substitution. They're not. So if we're going to try to get our heads around, if we're going to try to have our hearts grasp this idea of exchange or substitution, what are we to do? Well, we go to the cross and we look at the cross. We're on the cross, Jesus, who is perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, is unjustly treated, is unjustly crucified for us. When the righteous Jesus dies for unrighteous people, that's an exchange. That's a substitution. You see, the premise and the promise of salvation is so personal because Jesus is on the cross giving His life in exchange for us, as substitution for us. Jesus on the cross means something to not only the people who were in the crowd that day, but it means something to those of you who are here in this crowd this morning. But before we go all the way from there to here, let's back up one step. 
There is one person in the Bible story, in the crucifixion narrative, who understands more than anyone else this idea of exchange or substitution. And he's a man by the name of Barabbas. And he is, I mean, I don't really know I know how to explain this. He is the most unlikely of men. I mean, there's so much irony in his story. And listen, all respect and props due to the notorious B.I.G., Barabbas is the O.G., right? He is the original gangster. I'm not making this up. Matthew 27, 15 calls him a notorious criminal. So he's the first one to have that rap moniker. He is imprisoned for theft, for insurrection, and for murder. He is awaiting his terminal fate, which is going to be execution at the hands of the Romans. And Pilate, who is in charge of everything, wants to set him free. There's a custom that one time a year, Pilate would release one prisoner as a gesture of goodwill. And being warmed in, warned in a dream by his wife, Pilate is doing everything he can in this moment to set Barabbas free. But the religious leaders wanted to see Jesus destroyed, so they conspire against, they rile up the crowd. And when Pilate asked, who should I release? He's expecting them. He offers Barabbas, and they say, no, we want, we want you to release Barabbas. And he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him, kill him. So you know what happens? Pilate gives Jesus to be crucified and releases Barabbas. Now, here's the irony. A Barabbas means son of Abba, you know, not the Swedish rock group, Dancing Queen, or Meatballs, or Furniture, none of that. It means son of father. The son of father is in jail for crimes he did commit, and he is released while the son of God, who commits no crime, is condemned to die. This is exchange. This is substitution. There is no gospel of Barabbas. There is no gospel of Barabbas, but listen, the gospel is in the story of Barabbas, that one who is guilty, one who has done everything that you could do in rebellion, one who has done horrific things, this person is set free. But it's not just that he's set free. His life is given in exchange for Jesus, and Jesus gives himself in exchange for him. And this is the idea of exchange or substitution. And unless we see ourselves as Barabbas, we miss the gospel story. Unless we see that we too are terminally convicted, that we are on death row, that we are waiting for God to execute the punishment of our sin until we see that He is us and we are Him, then we see Jesus on the cross. Then we see His exchange. Then we see His substitution. Then we fall on our knees and say, Hallelujah! What a Savior! That He would give Himself while I was an enemy of God. That He would give Himself while I had been in complete rebellion to Him. Jesus on the cross is the story of one who gives Himself for those who do not deserve and those who could not earn. This is why salvation is so personal.
This is the promise of salvation and the premise of salvation. On the cross, Jesus unjustly received the due reward for your unrighteous deeds. On the cross, Jesus received the punishment of your wrong so that you might receive the reward of His righteousness. You can bind yourself to the fruitless and soul-crushing pursuit of trying to earn the love and grace and favor of God, or you can by faith accept the free gift that He offers you, the soul-cleansing, soul-freeing, releasing pursuit of grace as a free gift of God, the work that He's doing in your life. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He, ruined sinners to reclaim, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior! Let's pray. Oh, Father, in this moment, I pray that Your Spirit is speaking personal words to our hearts, that You take this gospel truth and You speak to each one of us today in the way that You know us so well. Convict us in these ways that we're still trying to earn our salvation. Show us the liberation of grace. Show us the freedom that comes from serving you fully and wholly because of your love. Remind us even this week as we, as we engage in this world, remind us every single day, Jesus, who gave himself for us. We pray through him. Amen.